Hey guys, I'm your host Smita Kanturi and welcome to Journey Podcast, your weekly podcast on transformational journeys. Everybody, I have Terry Kozlowski with me. She is inspiring others to transcend fear. She sets an example by living a balanced life, continuing to learn, create and be fully present so that the others can overcome their limiting beliefs and thrive. She also wrote a book recently. She's going to talk about her book as well in the story and she herself has a podcast. You can go follow her podcast as well. Please welcome to the show and uh, thank you for being here and explaining your story and inspiring other people with it. Please. Thank you, Smitha. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you. Thank you. My story is a tragic one. I was uh, sexually abused as a child and I was 11 years old at the time. And my mother was the one that allowed it to occur because she was an alcoholic and a drug addict and she sold my innocence so she could have drugs. So while she stood in the corner and watched, three Hispanic men raped me and she got drugs later on. She, she was watching? Excuse me? Sorry, she was watching you? Is that, is she was watching. Now I didn't remember that for a couple years later uh, my 11-year-old uh, mind decided it wasn't going to be a good idea for me to remember that initially. Um, but about four or five years later, I did remember that she was standing in the room watching. Sorry, please. That's okay. So she then disappeared for about four days. And my sister was sound asleep. I think they drugged her and she slept for three days. I had presence enough to monitor her breathing and make sure her heart was beating. And three days she woke up and was very hungry. And I was making sure she had food. I was taking care of her. And then the following day, my mother showed up again. So for those three days, she was not there. She completely left us alone. On the fourth day, she returned and she sent us off to the grocery store. And when we came back, she had our suitcases sitting out on the front stoop and told us it was time to leave. Leaving meant going back to Pennsylvania and we were in Albuquerque, New Mexico. So that was a 3000 mile difference from the closest family. So my sister's very upset and she doesn't know what has happened to me. She just knows that mommy is kicking us out and I am trying to determine how to move forward. And I, my sister wants to go to, to the best, my mother's best friend's house, who was the other person standing in the corner watching all of this. It was her, I believe it was her initial idea to allow this to happen. So we went to her place, which is about a mile away. So you have an 11 year old and a 10 year old struggling with suitcases, walking the streets of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and nobody stopped us. Nobody asked us what was wrong, if we needed help. This was in the early eighties. And this was in a part of town that was not a very safe place to be anyway. So we get to the friend's house and I call my dad and I tell him we need to come home. I don't think I told him what was going on other than mom says it's time for us to come home. And the next day we were on an airplane back to Pennsylvania. We get off the airplane and I walk up to my dad and I tell him that I need to go to therapy now. I'm not quite sure I knew what therapy was, but I knew that what had happened was bigger than something I could handle. I needed to talk to somebody, but I didn't know exactly what to say or how to say it because at 11, I really didn't understand what happened to me. Exactly, exactly. I know what you're talking about. 
Cool. So I am in therapy for five years. And in the early 80s, therapy for sexual abuse was not necessarily something that they were really good at yet. Now, it's a very clean, very simplistic process. There are steps to go through. In the early 80s, there wasn't any process. And we really didn't spend any time ever talking about the sexual abuse. We talked about the abandonment of my mother a little bit. And that's the crux of what my issues and tra trauma issues stem from was the fact that my mother not only didn't protect me, she literally left me on the streets alone yeah. and had continually done that throughout my life. I only saw my mother three times after I was 11. Once was when I married my first husband, I invited her to the wedding. I had always had the hope that she and I would reconcile and would have been very sad that she did not come to my wedding. She came to the wedding, it went fine. There wasn't any issues. And two years later, I went to visit her in New Mexico with my 18 month old son. Because again, I thought at some point we would reconcile and I would hate for her not to have met her grandson. That was the only time she ever saw him. And she only saw him for 18 hours because that's as long as she could stay sober. When she started drinking, I left with my son because I wasn't going to expose him to, to any of that. So the last time I saw my mother was in 1996. We had gone to, on a, really not a vacation. She was given up for adoption at the age of 16 out of a little village called Fort Yukon in Alaska, eight miles inside the Arctic Circle. It's a Native American village, Athabascan tribe, Tinglet clan, uh, Tinglet Raven clan. And she had left there and hadn't been back for 40 years. This was her return to oh. see the family. And I went along and it was the only time that my mother was ever sober. She was sober the entire time. I, I don't wanna say that she was completely sober. She did not drink alcohol because in Fort Yukon, Alaska, marijuana is legal and they were all smoking marijuana. <laughs> uh, eight miles inside the Arctic Circle in February, it's very dark except for about two and a half hours of what's considered twilight. Otherwise it's cold and dark. The high was negative 50 below when we were there. Wow. Mm. And that was the last time I saw my mother. So when this was happening to you at 11 years old, where was your dad? My dad was in Pennsylvania. My parents divorced when I was eight. He got custody of my sister and I. He was the first man in the state of Maryland to get custody of two small girls. And this would have been in the early 70s. So that was kind of unheard of at the time. Um, she did not show up to the hearing, which was a default meant that my dad got us. And she always said that she gave us up, that she gave us to my father. And I guess in her mind, that's what she did. But again, for me, that was another abandonment. Yep. So that was another time that she had done that. So we lived with my dad and he moved us from Maryland to Pennsylvania where his mother and father were. So we had a very close relationship with my grandparents growing up, which was a very good thing because that is where I learned what a real mother was supposed to be like and how that loving relationship is supposed to occur because I didn't get it from my own mother. Of course, of course. 
And you were mentioning that you wanted to reconcile with your mother. Why is that so important to you? Why do you want to connect with her? Though you know internally, like you're feeling that she's the one who abandoned you or whatever happened to you, everything was because of her. But still you wanted to reconcile with her. Why is that? Because I'm one of those optimistic people that really and truly believe that love can overcome. And I did everything on my end. I forgave her. I was able to move past my hurts and move on with my life. But she was so harmed and so in her own pain, being given up for adoption at the age of 16. She was um, physically abused by her adoptive parents. She had been raped when, after my parents' divorce, she had been um, brutally raped in the city of New York. So she had a lot of issues. She was an alcoholic early on. So before I was born, she was an alcoholic. So she had long-standing issues. And I understand that. And I'm compassion. I had compassion for her. It still did not give her the right to do what she did to me. It also meant that for me to forgive her, which I was able to do, having hope that somebody can overcome their own issues is really deep down part of our compassionate nature as, as humans, that we believe in ultimately in the good of, of each other. And somewhere deep down in there, there was somebody who was in pain and I saw that person and hoping that someday she would find her way out of her own pain. And she never did. She died alone um, in a state hospital it took two months before the state of New Mexico found my sister, who was in Pennsylvania, because she told them she had no family. She had no next of kin. So again, in her death, she abandoned me again. So there was a consistent theme for her that the easiest way for her not to deal with things was just to push everybody away. And in her death, she did the same thing. Got you. Got you. When you mentioned your parents, grandparents is where you have understood like what mother's love is. What other things are the important lesson that you think that you have learned from your grandparents? My grandparents were extremely loving and was this a very safe place for me to be. When I came back from New Mexico, I was very, very fearful. And I was in, I lived from a place of fear for over a decade and maybe about 15 years. I think I, I lived from that base fear. But in my grandmother's home, what ended up happening was some of that guard came down and the little girl that she remembers, she would encourage. So she would encourage me to do those things I used to do when I was younger. She would encourage me to read the books. She was very, um, very religious and she got me my first Bible and she was trying to help introduce me to some sort of what she called spirituality. She called God, God, and it was based on the biblical teachings of Christianity. Her father was a minister of, in the Methodist church, but she married a Catholic. So she ended up converting and, but she, when she gave me the Bible, she gave me the King James version, not the, the Catholic Bible. So she, she could still um, be her own individual and still understand that the, the, there was similarities, but still differences. So I learned to connect to God through my grandmother, mm. and which was very important when I returned from New Mexico because God and I argued. 
And I don't know that I ever actually heard God say anything back, but I argued. I was very angry and asked a lot of questions, asked the why question. And it, through all the years that I went through trying to understand why everything had occurred, I finally got to the place where why doesn't matter. And the reason why doesn't matter is because whatever my mother could have said would never have been able to justify what she did. Yes. And that is ultimately what the why question is, is to justify it to us in some way that we can accept it. And I just can't ever get past that you can't, a mother does not do that to her child. That's not what mothering is about. And that being said, I finally gave up the question why. And interestingly enough, I gave it up about six months before I found out she died because I was never going to get that reconciliation. I was never going to get that ultimate question answered. And so, but I was okay with myself when she passed, when I found out she passed, that that was um, something that I had already given up. So part of the dealing with the fear aspect of things. And my book is called Raven Transcending Fear. And it's really based about the fact that I lived in a tremendous state of fear for about 15 years. And when you are not able to feel safe, you cannot move ahead and grow into the human being you were supposed to become. So I knew that I wasn't born fearful. I knew, and there's pictures of me um, when I was little in the book, I am a spunky little thing and I know that I have a purpose and I'm going after it. So I was very much rambunctious as a child. And when I came back from New Mexico, even if I never said anything to you, if you knew me beforehand, you knew something ultimately changed because who I was disappeared. Hmm. I shut down. I went in, I went inside and any friends I had, I didn't associate with anymore because I was afraid. If my mother could do this, anybody else on the planet could too. So I was very untrusting and very cautious. It took me a year before I told my dad everything that happened because I didn't know if I could trust him. I didn't know how he would react. So when you're living from that place of fear, life kind of stops. And you become very stagnant and the ego completely takes control because now everything that comes your way, that Hispanic kid that you're in high school with, who looks like, you know, the dark hair, dark eyes as one of the rapists, you become fearful of that child that you have no idea anything about, but you automatically become fearful because the ego says that's somebody to be afraid of. And at 12, 13, 14, 15, I didn't have enough presence to understand that that wasn't the case. So when you're diagnosed, your grandparents might also be knowing this fact, correct? Well, they knew something was wrong, something had changed, but they they assumed that it was the fact that my mother sent us home early. But my grandmother never found out, was never told about the rape because Everybody said that that was something that they thought would just utterly shatter her. And I certainly didn't want to be, have that responsibility. And, you know, so I never told her. Hmm. Okay. 
So what is forgiveness in your words? Forgiveness is the ability to let go of negative things that ultimately harm you. It really has nothing to do with the other person because the ultimate reality is my mother could have, you know, she and I never talked about forgiveness because it wasn't something that she thought she did anything wrong. Hmm. So forgiveness is a way for me to deal with the pain, for me to deal with the poison that was running through my veins of being angry, of being feeling bad for myself and shaming myself. Forgiving meant that all of that was released. So release in the sense of what kind of a process was that that, that, were, that you were following? Sorry. For me at the time, I was doing a lot arguing with God um, and I was journaling a lot. That's the one thing therapy did tell me to do was to journal. And I did a lot of journaling um, for a period of time. And that was very cathartic because it was releasing a lot of anger and confusion. Because there's a lot of confusion when you're 11 and 12 and you don't understand what happened to you. And I did know what sex was, but that just the basics. So for all of this to have occurred was something that was a little out of my realm of understanding of why it happened. What exactly was it? Was it something to harm me? Was it a power struggle? Whatever it was, I couldn't comprehend or understand. So I was arguing with God about that and dealing with the fact that the struggle to deal with the fear kept coming back over and over and over again, it came back to, I can't trust people. And the egoic mind allowed me to stay in that fear for a very long time. And the way you are mentioning you are journaling and the struggle, what other practices are like thoughts that you have to actually overcome all those? The ultimate thing that I ended up doing through the process when, when I met my current husband it was the first time that I felt this strange thing happen. I didn't know what it was. And it finally dawned on me that when I was with him, I wasn't afraid. And I didn't understand that because he's a big guy and you know he's six foot tall, 250 pounds, he's a big guy. And I'm just, I'm five, two, I weigh a hundred pounds. I'm this little thing. So he can be very intimidating to people. But for me, I don't know if that intimidation factor actually made me feel safe, but I felt safe in his presence. I knew he was never going to hurt me. And in realizing that when we got married, it allowed me to get to that second level of Matt Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which was to be safe. And when I became safe, all kinds of other things started to unravel because, you know, you can't ex grow if you are always fearful. So I became less fearful and realized I had all kinds of other problems. <laughs> so, and as you do the work, as you make, take the journey, as you walk through life, you peel the layers off like an onion. And I got to the safety issue, that was resolved, and I was sleeping better. I could go places and 
feel comfortable because I wasn't paying attention to, to the Hispanic man that was coming down the opposite side of the street anymore. But then other issues arose and I realized that I was some of the safety mechanisms that my ego put in place when I was 11 and 12 were now harming me and keeping everybody at arm's distance meant that I had no friends and I had nobody to confide in. And we all need that. We all need that commu the communication and the human connection. Our brains are wired to make that connection to keep us happy and strong and supportive. But I kept blocking that because when I was 11, 12, 13, that was the right thing for me to do because I didn't know how to trust people. Now that I am in my late 20s, early 30s, doing that, I mean, I know if I can trust somebody or not, are they being nice to me? You know, the other aspect of that was learning how to set personal boundaries. Up until that time, if my mother called, I answered the phone and I talked to her. Honor thy mother and my father was very important to me for a very long period of time. And it finally took a minister's wife, who's a very dear friend of mine, to say to me, you need to understand that honoring your mother doesn't mean you allow her to hurt you. Exactly. Because exactly. the minute you allow her to hurt you, you are then harming yourself and there's no self-love and you ultimately have to take care of yourself. So that was one of the biggest hurdles for me to overcome was to start setting personal boundaries, specifically with my mother, because she would call drunk and blame me for everything. I was the reason my dad and her divorced. I was the reason she was an alcoholic. I was the reason, you know, she was a drug. I was the reason that she was what she was. And up until I was 15, 16, I believed her. And then something, well, I had a mental breakdown is basically what happened. <laughs> she called, she went through all this with me again. And I finally screamed, it's not my fault, it's not my fault. I threw the phone across the room and next thing I know, my dad's holding me and rocking me and trying to get me to calm down. Um, he finally did. But after that, I knew it wasn't my fault anymore. But putting those personal boundaries in place still took many, many more years for me to get to. And I have to say that it didn't occur until after my second marriage. And I it would have been in my early 30s that I finally set that boundary in place and told my mother that if she, I would accept her calls, but if she was drunk, I wasn't going to talk to her. So when she called drunk, I said, mom, you're drunk. You know, I can't talk to you when you're drunk. And I'd hang up the phone. And then I'd unplug the phone from the wall. You know, when we used to have phones that plugged into walls. <laughs> yep. uh, and I would unplug the phone so that she wouldn't continually call back. And over a period of time, she finally realized I wasn't going to take her calls. And she quit calling me when she was drunk. So that, you know, it was a hard thing for me to do, but it ended up being beneficial for both her and I. She couldn't lash out at me and I wasn't getting hurt in the process. Absolutely. And you, uh, when we were talking before, you mentioned like you were looking for that mother figure throughout your life. And your first husband's mother was replacing that a lot for you. Can you explain that experience? Like, why are you actually looking for her? Absolutely. I mean, I can understand with your story that you were missing your mother figure there. So you tried to connect with someone else. But what was it like for you? When I met my first husband's mother, Linda, she was not the typical redhead. 
which she was very quiet, very demure. And I could tell there was some sort of pain in her, but I didn't know what it was. And over a course of about six months, she and I became extremely close. And even after her son and I divorced, literally six weeks after we were divorced, she came and stayed with me and my new husband and stay with us. And then when we moved to a different state, she came to visit us. <laughs> so we maintained the relationship. And I think that that was um, the universe showing me that even if I would not have married my first husband, I still would have gotten the relationship I needed to have with Linda. Through her, I was able to connect with his family because they were very close knit. They got together for everything. So if, there, if one of the cousins had a birthday, we all got together um, and had dinner and had a cake and had presents. We got together for every holiday. So they were very close knit bond that my family really didn't have. I had that with my grandparents, but we didn't have an extended family the way he did, or at least the extended family we had was all over the country, so we didn't get together. Um, so for me, Linda was very much the reason that I married my first husband. I knew on our wedding day, I shouldn't be marrying him. I knew that I was marrying him, so Linda would be my mother. And at the end of that day, when Linda was my mother and she gave me a hug and it was, for me, the pinnacle of me being part of a, of a loving family that had a mother figure that was going to take care of me. You know, when I was pregnant, she came down and took care of me and my son after he was born. Um, all those things that I imagined my mother should have done, she did. You mentioned you were taking therapy or like you asked your father to take therapy once you stepped out at 11 years of age. But when was it actually happened to you to unwrap everything and feel like, okay, I, I don't want to keep having this burden anymore. I wanted to like, yeah, make myself free out of this. When did that uh, moment come to you? I was as in 2014, I was getting ready to turn 40 years old. And I realized that I, despite everything that I had learned, I was still suffering. And at this point, my mother had passed, my uh, Linda had passed, my son was grown and, and moved out of the home. So it, it was back to just me and my current husband. And I had a lot of time alone. And that's one of the things that I didn't have a lot of prior. Mm. And when we get to be alone and we get to really pay attention to ourselves and get quiet is when we discover who we really are. And in, in my quiet time, in my rediscovery, what I found out was the main thing that caused me the most grief were the tapes that were playing inside my head that I was turning on. Nobody else was around to turn them on. I was turning those tapes on. So I was responsible for the th negative thoughts playing in my head. I was responsible for hearing my mother's voice saying certain things when I messed up. 
Ooh. My mother's dead. <laughs> yeah, she was still telling me I messed up. So these are the things that I realized, this is me. This is my, my doing. And it was very cathartic to realize that, dang, I've been causing my own suffering all these years. And I had gone back in, uh, when I was in college, I had went from being major mind shift from being a victim to being a survivor. I had a college friend tell me that I got something out of playing the victim. And I was very angry. Yes, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I was very angry, but something about it stuck with me. What, what is this? Maybe I am getting something out of being a victim. And what I realized was I was. When you are a victim, there are certain things that happen. People around you know that you're a victim and they're really careful with you. They don't upset you. They walk on eggshells. They want to make sure you're okay. And for somebody that wanted to be left alone, I was good with this. So I was getting something out of it. What I ended up shifting was I realized there had to be a better way, a healthier way for me to be left alone, for me to communicate to others that, you know what, I'm good. Just, I, I just kind of want to be left alone than playing the victim. And I shifted that day from being a victim to being a survivor. And when you become a survivor, you take responsibility for your actions and your choices. And that's what I did. So I, up until that point, I could blame everything I did on what had happened to me. All my problems were caused by the trauma. All my current problems are caused by my trauma. But when I became a survivor, I was responsible for the actions I took and the choices I made and the words I said from that day moving forward. And that was the first pivotal shift that I made. So when you're mentioning that shift, and also like when we were talking on one-on-one, -on -one, you mentioned like correct the self-talk. What was the process like when you mentioned like you are correcting your self-talk? What, what is that? For example, if I'm telling myself like, okay, just now you also mentioned like everything that is happening around you is your mistake. So how, how do you actually like correct your self-meaning? So one of the biggest tapes that played in my head was I needed to take care of my baby sister. And I took care of my baby sister until she was in her thirties. And okay. <laughs> So she called and she asked me if I would give her shelter and I got her out of an abusive relationship. I showed up the next day on her doorstep with a U-Haul trailer to take her and her kids back to my house in Indiana. She was in Pennsylvania. So taking care of my baby sister was one of the tapes that played in my head. What I ended up doing for that one after all of that, she came, lived with me for a while and then she left was that I realized that I am not responsible for my sister. Taking care of my baby sister may have been something that I needed. And I know it was a defense mechanism that I used to help manage the situation when I was in New Mexico. But now we're in our thirties. She learns, needs to learn how to take care of herself. And I need to release that. So when other people would say, well, you need to take care of Tammy, my response ha has been, no, Tammy needs to take care of Tammy. Terry's taking care of Terry and she can take care of herself. So that was one of the big, big ones I paid attention to, but some of the little ones, the, you know, when you tell yourself, um, 
when you've messed up. I was a perfectionist. And part of being a perfectionist is two things. Number one, it has to do with making sure that there is no chance of failure and there is no chance to mess up. So you set your expectations really high. Nobody can meet your expectations. So you have to do everything yourself and you're a one woman show, all of that. And you set yourself up to be alone. Hmm. So my ego was using my perfectionism by staying very busy in these volunteer organizations. I wasn't getting paid, yet I was busy all the time. And that meant I wasn't spending any time alone. I wasn't getting quiet, which meant I couldn't work on myself. So it was a distraction. It was a way for me to keep staying in the area that I was in as far as growth. I was stagnating, I was in my comfort zone. And when I realized what perfectionism was, and I realized that me staying busy all the time. I stayed busy up until 2014. In 2014, the universe moved me away from an organization I was volunteering in. And now it became very difficult for me to volunteer. And I had nobody in this area that I currently live. So I was like, okay, now what do I do? I went to painting classes and got creative. And in finding my creativity, I ended up finding out certain things about myself that I remembered when I was a child. Then I started taking yoga classes. I did, I did the painting for a year, then I went to yoga for a year. In yoga classes, I had been trying to learn how to meditate since uh, 2012. Wasn't something I could do. It was very, very difficult. Started taking yoga classes. Six months into yoga class, I realized that during Shavasana, corpse pose at the end of yoga class, I had no thoughts in my head. Oh my gosh, this is what meditation is. <laughs> <laughs> so six months into yoga class, I finally learned how to meditate. And again, I was by myself. Yes, there were other people in class, but I was there. Yoga is, a, is something you do by yourself. You don't you're not in a group setting. You're not team playing. You are doing this by yourself for yourself. So the more I, time I spent with myself, the quieter I got, the more in tune with my authenticity I got. And those thought patterns just dissipated because now I would recognize that my egoic voice is very loud. It screams at you, don't do that. But your soul whispers, go ahead and do it. It's going to be okay. Just try. The ego is screaming, no, 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 no. So we listen to whatever the loudest voice is. But I learned that in my quiet time, and I spend an hour alone every morning, start off my day to get quiet, to get centered, and to know that everything that happens in this day is meant to happen. I'm going to be fine. And I'm going to end up at the end of the day being thankful and grateful for the day I had. When you say it is so interesting to hear that you spend yourself for an hour in the morning and what kind of a thought process, just now you mentioned one of the other point, like everything that happens throughout the day meant to happen and I'll be okay at the end with feeling of a gratitude. But for an hour, how will you silence your mind without having any thoughts going through a lot of these things? And also like, again, right now, if I just speak about just this moment for you, you are at a place that are, you are helping other people to get that hope inspired from your story or like even to come out of their pain or whatever. 
So how do you actually like silence your mind without having any of these thoughts around you? The way I start my day is I meditate, then I journal, and I journal three pages. So part of that creativity I talked about, I took um, a class called um, Julie Cameron's where she talks about morning pages. The Artist's Way is the name of the course that I took. And I've taught The Artist's Way. And it's, we're all creative beings. We, are, we were born creative. Somewhere along the way, our creativity can be shut down by some senseless teacher who tells you that you will never be a painter. Um, I had one of those. <laughs> and, and literally for 25 years, I didn't pick up a paintbrush. I mean, that's, that's how quickly somebody can shut down your creativity. So if a child paints a purple unicorn, it's okay. Yep. Let them paint the purple unicorn. So during, I write three morning pages. So I write, I journal three pages. And the way I journal is, is not what most people journal. I start off by thanking spirit mm. for what happened yesterday. I thank spirit for what I want to accomplish today. I thank spirit for the peace that floods my body. I thank spirit that I am radically well and my body is functioning as it was intended to function. Mm. So I am, it's all about thanking spirit for three full pages. Wow. So when you start the day with that much gratitude, you come from, you come from a place where you are at peace and joyful, which are both qualities that actually are spiritual qualities that reside in our soul and they rise up out of us. So when people say that I'm, you seem joyful all the time, that's because I am. Hmm. No offense, nobody has the power to take away my joy unless I give them the power to do so. And I'm at the place in my life where I don't give people power to do that. Just like peace. Peace is an internal spiritual aspect of our soul. And I'm always peaceful. I'm going to be the contradiction when, when all hell's breaking loose, I'm going to be the calm one. I'm going to be the one that's, you calm down. Let's breathe. Let's breathe. Let's, let's get to a place where we can breathe. Because the moment we calm down and become in, come into the present moment, the present moment, everything is okay. And it's us getting there. That's the problem because we live, I lived for 15 years in the past in a place of fear. And that's called depression. And then I switched to where I spent another 10 years worried about the future, which is called anxiety. And so I've been medicated for both. Ultimately, when you become present and you deal with life from whatever moment you are currently in, everything really is okay. Because you're not thinking about the past, you're not worried about the future. In the present moment, there is peace. In the present moment, there is joy. And so staying present is why I do my morning practices. So that's one of the, thank you spirit that today I'm fully present and awake and aware of what is occurring. Beautiful way of putting past, present and future. Thank Absolutely you. Beautiful. But when we were talking before, you also mentioned about self-talk reframing. What does that mean? So reframing, actually, I didn't realize it when I wrote it in the book, is actually a psychological tool that is used to 
take a story that we tell ourselves and put it in a different perspective. So for example, when you go from taking your trauma story and making it into a survivor story, that's reframing. And you can do that with anything. You can do that with, so you, you know, your car has broken down, you're stuck on the side of the road, you know, you're all upset, but you can reframe it by thinking there was a really nice woman that stopped and she forced her husband to change my tire, (laughs) you know, and you can look at it from the perspective that the universe had somebody come help you. So Mm -hmm. then you see the benefit and the compassion in humanity, which is very hard for a lot of people to see now. People are so media focused on the negativity that the reality is if we walk down our street every day, we see compassionate act after compassionate act after compassionate act. You see people holding doors open for one another. Somebody drops their bag and you see a bunch of people trying to help them pick the bag up. You watch people chase a dog that has gotten loose. And these are all acts of compassion that we don't realize because we're so focused on the media. When we take in all that negativity and we allow it to be in the forefront of our minds, it becomes very much than what our ego reacts to. So one of the things my husband and I talked about was the fact that we watched lots of movies that the entire American population watches violent movie after violent movie after violent movie. And some of them are even comedies that are violent. Yeah. So like the movie Deadpool is very comedic, but there's death everywhere. <laughs> so, but we watch all this and our ego doesn't differentiate between a real life-threatening situation and something we watch on TV. So when it sees us watching a movie that there's gang violence and you have African-Americans going up against Asian-Americans, and then when you walk down your street, you are seeing Asian-Americans and African-Americans and you're thinking, oh my gosh, maybe there's gonna be a gang war. There's not gonna be a gang war in your little town. What you're ego is reacting to is something that you fed it. You fed the ego those things. So feed the ego something different. Feed the ego peaceful things. Feed the ego the fact that 99.9% of us are genetically the same, exactly the same from our genetic code. Only 0.1% is different. And sadly, that is our exterior. That is what, that's the first thing we see. So those of us who I think are awakening in this time are now realizing that I'm looking at you and you are a soul. You are a loving, beautiful soul and I'm seeing your light and the rest of it doesn't matter. Yep, yep. And that is really about where the book finally comes to is that us being able to recognize that we're all soulful beings we all want the exact same thing. We all just want to be loved. Yep. We just want to be loved. So we have a choice every day to re- react from a place of fear, so. which is where you see the violence and the hatred and all, all the negativity that's out in the world comes from a place of fear. Or you can respond consciously from a place of love. And when you respond consciously from a place of love, it takes the the negativity down a notch. And it might not happen immediately, but over time it will happen. But we all have to respond from a place of love to get there. Yep, yep. Your book actually, like 
it, it is a memoir of yourself, right? You Correct. Right. It okay. is a memoir. So why is the ribbon on, on the cover, book cover? The book, Raven Transcending Fear, the, the name of the book came to me first. And I wrote the book, I picked the imagery, and I had an editor say, you mentioned the raven once or twice, but you really don't tell us why it's so important to you. My mother's Athabascan Tinglet Raven Clan. And when I was in high school, I did a lot of research on the raven and found out lots of fabulous things. Number one, they're extremely intelligent. Number two, they are in all the different religions in some way or another. Many times they are a bridge from the spirit realm to the earthly realm. And it's a very spiritual aspect of life. And for a lot of people, they think the raven is, or crows at that, are things that are associated with death. Well, it's because they're there to help the spirit get to the next level. So yes, they show up at death, but you want them to show up death to help you transition. So from a Native American perspective and specifically my clan's perspective, Raven brought the sun to the world, which means Raven brings the light. Oh. The world was dark and the Raven brings the light. My world was very dark and the light was brought to me through the Raven. And the Raven, the magic of the Raven clan, I talk about in the book a little bit, is what I was able to use within myself and to find within myself to bring out and to shine my inner light that was hidden away by the traumas. In, in our culture, Raven is, again, the same uh, kind of uh, acknowledgement, I believe that Raven is one of the spiritual being. Once a person is dead, you actually serve your first food after that to Raven. After they ate, then that's when we eat. Saying like, yeah, those are your ancestors. They are blessing you. They are telling you like, yeah, be at peace. We are gone. We are not actually gone. We are our spirits still here with you. Like, yeah, blessing you are like, yeah, trying to help you with whatever the things. So that, that's was, that was really intriguing for me to understand what it was for you. Well, the raven is a trans, it's a trickster. It transforms, it transcends. And those are the qualities that I think that anybody that's gone through trauma ends up transforming and transcending what happened to them into becoming a beautiful being of light that is meant to help others overcome as well. Beautifully put. Thank wow. you. And regarding your podcast, what is that you actually project in your podcast? Soul Solutions is the podcast I started last year, and it really delves in into specific areas of limiting beliefs and overcoming fear. We talk for, it's just me, I talk for about uh, 15 minutes or so, and we dive deep into one area. So last week's podcast was about... Um, communication and why, how we communicate is important and those things that we can do so that we communicate better with others. Um, next week's podcast is about finding our tribe and why it's important to have a tribe, those few people 
that we bond with and that we connect to because those are the people that help us transcend. Those are the people that help us overcome. Those are the people that encourage us when we take a misstep. And yet they're always giving us unconditional love no matter what we do. So finding our tribe is important. So I take a little bit here and a little bit there. Um, in a couple of weeks, I'll be talking about shame and how destructive shame is and how we can overcome shame. So each week it's, it's a little tidbit um, where we dive deeper into one of the issues that's covered in the book. So it is, it, it is a video podcast you mentioned. It's a weekly podcast. It comes out every Tuesday. Okay. Okay. Why do you want it to tell your story out? I've always told my story. I've been telling my story since I was in uh, college when I became that survivor, when I had that mindset shift. I have spoken in front of a room of 600 women when I was in my early 20s. And I have always been asked if I was ever going to write my story. And it wasn't just no, it was hell no, I wasn't writing my story. And I'm not quite sure why I didn't think I would write my story, but all of a sudden in 2018, I became pregnant with a book. And I sat down and in nine months, it literally poured out of me. I had no outline. I had no idea how I was gonna do this. I sat down and started typing and it just poured out of me. So I know that spirit was very much involved in the creation of the book. I went through um, very large rounds of edits um, before it was published last week. And the reason I know now that I'm supposed to do have the book is because I realized that for a lot of people, my story is very heart-wrenching, but at the same time, since I've come as far as I have in my recovery, I've become this very strong individual who has overcome. I don't live from a place of fear. I have become my authentic self. And whether or not you and I are on a podcast or you come to my house for tea, this is who I am and I'm okay with who I am. And if you don't like who I am, that's okay too. So I've gotten to this place from where I was to where I am is a very large space, hmm. but it can be traversed. And my story can help people traverse it in far less time than it took me. <laughs> and that's what I'm trying to do. There are so many people that are awakening and we still live in a world where it's now even worse than th one, uh, three out of, um, one out of three women are sexually abused before they're 18. And so th since that is still occurring, there's a lot of wounded women in this world. And I would rather them start now and get over things faster than have to go through the you know, decades that I had to go through to get, get to the other side of it. What kind of outcome that you are expecting with the work that you are doing? I'm not expecting an outcome. I know that I was supposed to birth this. I know I'm supposed to put it out in the world. I know I'm supposed to talk and help others. That's all I'm supposed to do. My expectations are that the universe is going to use it and it's going to help the people that it needs to help. That it, the people who read the book are meant by spirit to read the book. 
The people that listen to the podcast are meant to listen to the podcast. So I'm trusting at this point that spirit is taking it and I did my part. No, uh, but I meant like outcome, the help that you are doing when you are trying to help other people. So what kind of help, for example, if I'm listening to your podcast or if I'm reading your book, what can I expect out of that book? Or like what kind of a help that I can expect? Or like when you are actually throwing your tidbits every week, your wisdom, I can say, when you are talking about those points, which you learned in a hard way throughout your life. And now that you are trying to teach other people saying like, you don't have to go through all that I have gone through just to um, get these lessons or something. So in, in those kind of lines, what is that help that you are actually trying to do? I'm giving them a different perspective. Excellent. Different perspective of what? Most people have one perspective about their life. They have one thing that they've been taught. They have one belief that they were learned, that they, for some reason, have taken hold of. My goal is to be able to say, wait a second, there, there could be something different. Let's look at possibilities that are out there. We are limitless beings of light, which means our limitations that we have are all self-imposed. So if we think we can't, we are right, we can't. But if we think we can, let's try. Let's move forward, let's try. So the ultimate goal is that I allow you to see a different perspective, whether it's about the fact that having a tribe and reaching out to somebody may not be detrimental to you. Reaching out may actually prove to be one of the best things you can do. Telling somebody your shameful story may be the first step you take in healing instead of allowing shame to be behind the wall of silence where it's in the dark and there are secrets about it and then we suffer because there is no light. The moment we put light onto shame, it dissipates. And, but we have to share it. We have to bring it into the light. And so that is ultimately my goal. The book and the podcast give you different perspective to look at something. So I, we all learn as a child, but as we grow up, we have to unlearn, relearn, and sometimes start anew. Yep. Because a lot of things that I believe to be true were not true. They were lies from the ego. And I had to unlearn things that I was told was the way to be. So I had to do the unlearning process. And, you know, I've done a, a article and a blog post on unlearning and why it's important that we look and examine our beliefs. Because even what I believed when I was 20 changed when I was 35, changed when I was 45. So as we go through life, we have to examine, okay, do I believe that still? Hmm. Are all the Hispanic men in the world going to harm me? And the answer is no. And I've had more positive experiences with Hispanic men than I have with negative ones. But still, the ego will warn me, hey, there's a Hispanic man. But that's its job. Its job is to warn us of potential harm. Oh. However, we can say, thank you, ego, for letting me know but I've had more positive experience with Hispanic men than I have negative. There's no reason for me to be afraid and we can dismiss it. Excellent. Excellent. I'm pretty sure you might have been as a guest into many podcasts and your own podcast. 
Is there something that you could share with our audience that you have never shared with anybody or like any kind of a wisdom to maybe your experience, maybe your lesson, maybe your wisdom, anything that you think that you never spoke with any other audience so far? That's a good question. <laughs> Getting, when we get quiet, lots of times we have many egoic thoughts at the beginning process when we start to get quiet. And sometimes we need to realize that that's exactly what's happening. Our egoic mind doesn't know quite what to do when we get quiet. So you have to persevere. Sometimes in the beginning, journaling a little bit while you're getting quiet will help get through determining whether or not it's the egoic voice or your soulful voice that's speaking. And that takes time. That's something that you have to figure out for yourself. And although I can give you pointers on any of that, that's, I think, is the hardest part to getting quiet is when you're first trying to do it, figuring out what is actually happening. What thoughts that are coming into my head, are they egoic thoughts or are they from my soul? And if it's loud, it's not your soul. If you have to get really, really quiet and like, oh, wait a second, what was that? That's probably your soul because it's the one that whispers. Okay, thank you for tuning in. And you can find me on all the socials at Smitha Gunturi and the show notes for any resources mentioned. See you next week. Take care.